Chapter Nine, Section One of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Three. The Production of Absolute Surplus Value. Chapter 9. The Rate of Surplus Value. Section 1. The Degree of Exploitation of Labor Power. The surplus value generated in the process of production by C, the capital advanced, or in other words, the self-expansion of the value of the capital, C, presents itself for our consideration. In the first place, as a surplus, as the amount by which the value of the product exceeds the value of its constituent elements. The capital C is made up of two components, one the sum of money C laid out upon the means of production, and the other the sum of money V expended upon the labor power. C represents the portion that has become constant capital, and V the portion that has become variable capital. At first, then, large C equals C plus V. For example, if five hundred pounds is the capital advanced, its components may be such that the five hundred equals four hundred and ten constant plus ninety variable. When the process of production is finished, we get a commodity whose value equals C plus V plus S, where S is the surplus value, or taking our former figures, the value of this commodity may be four hundred and ten constant plus ninety variable plus ninety surplus. The original capital has now changed from C to C prime, from 500 to 590 pounds. The difference is S, or a surplus value, of 90 pounds, since the value of the constituent elements of the product is equal to the value of the advanced capital. It is mere tautology to say that the excess of the value of the product over the value of its constituent elements is equal to the expansion of the capital advanced or to the surplus value produced. Nevertheless, we must examine this tautology a little more closely. The two things compared are the value of the product and the value of its constituent consumed in the process of production. Now we have seen how that portion of the constant capital which consists of the instruments of labor transfers to the production only a fraction of its value, while the remainder of that value continues to reside in those instruments. Since this remainder plays no part in the formation of value, we may at present leave it to one side. To introduce it into the calculation would make no difference. For instance, taking our formal example, small c equals 410 pounds. Suppose this sum to consist of 312 value of raw material, 44 value of auxiliary material, and 54 value of the machinery worn away in the process, and suppose that the total value of the machinery employed is 1,054 pounds. Out of this latter sum, then, we reckon as advanced for the purpose of turning out the product the sum of 54 pounds alone, which the machinery loses by wear and tear in the process, for this is all it parts with to the product. Now, if we also reckon the remaining 1,000 pounds, which still continues in the machinery, as transferred to the product, we ought also to reckon it as a part of the value advanced, and thus make it appear on both sides of our calculation. We should, in this way, get 1,500 pounds on one side, and 1,590 on the other. The difference of these two sums, or the surplus value, would still be 90 pounds. Throughout this book, therefore, by constant capital advanced for the production of value, we always mean, unless the context is repugnant thereto, 
the value of the means of production actually consumed in the process, and that value alone. Footnote. If we reckon the value of the fixed capital employed as a part of the advances, we must reckon the remaining value of such capital at the end of the year as part of the annual returns. Malthus, Principles of Political Economy, 2nd Edition, London, 1836, page 269. End note. This being so, let us return to the formula, large C equals C plus V, which we saw was transformed into C prime equals C plus V plus S, big C becoming C prime. We know that the value of the constant capital is transferred to, and merely reappears in the product. The new value actually created in the process, the value produced, or value product, is therefore not the same as the value of the product. It is not, as it would at first sight appear, C plus V plus S, or 410 constant plus 90 variable plus 90 surplus, but V plus S, or 90 variable plus 90 surplus, not 590, but 180 pounds. If small c equals zero, or in other words, if there were branches of industry in which the capitalist could dispense with all means of production made by previous labor, whether they be raw material, auxiliary material, or instruments of labor, employing only labor power and materials supplied by nature, in that case there would be no constant capital to transfer to the product. This component of the value of the product, i.e., the 410 pounds in our example, would be eliminated, but the sum of 180 pounds, the amount of new value created, or the value produced, which contains 90 pounds of surplus value, would remain just as great as if small c represented the highest value imaginable. We should have c equals zero plus v, equals v or c prime, the expanded capital, equals v plus s, and therefore c prime minus c equals s as before. On the other hand, if s equals zero, or in other words, if the labor power, whose value is advanced in the form of variable capital, were to produce only its equivalent, we should have large c equals c plus v, or c prime, the value of the product, c plus v plus zero, or c equals c prime. The capital advanced would, in this case, not have expanded its value. From what has gone before, we know that surplus value is purely the result of a variation in the value of v, of that portion of the capital which is transformed into labor power. Consequently, V plus S equals V plus V, or V plus an increment of V. But the fact that it is V alone that varies, and the conditions of that variation are obscured by the circumstance that in consequence of the increase in the variable component of the capital, there is also an increase in the sum total of the advanced capital. It was originally 500 and becomes 590 pounds. Therefore, in order that our investigation may lead to accurate results, we must make abstraction from that portion of the value of the product, in which constant capital alone appears, and consequently must equate the constant capital to zero, or make C equal zero. This is merely an application of a mathematical rule, employed whenever we operate with constant and variable magnitudes, related to each other by the symbols of addition and subtraction only. A further difficulty is caused by the original form of the variable capital. In our example, C prime equals 410 constant plus 90 variable plus 90 surplus, but 90 is a given and therefore a constant quantity, hence it appears absurd to treat it as variable. But in fact, the term 90 variable is here merely a symbol to show that this value undergoes a process. The portion of the capital invested in the purchase of labor power is a definite quantity of materialized labor 
a constant value like the value of the labor-power purchased. But in the process of production the place of the ninety pounds is taken by the labor-power in action. Dead labor is replaced by living labor, something stagnant by something flowing, a constant by a variable. The result is the reproduction of V plus an increment of V. From the point of view, then, of capitalist production, the whole process appears as the spontaneous variation of the originally constant value, which is transformed into labor-power. Both the process and its result appear to be owing to this value. If, therefore, such expressions as ninety variable capital, or so much self-expanding value, appear contradictory, this is only because they bring to the surface a contradiction imminent in capitalist production. At first sight it appears a strange proceeding to equate the constant capital to zero. Yet it is what we do every day. If, for example, we wish to calculate the amount of England's profits from the cotton industry, we first of all deduct the sums paid for cotton to the United States, India, Egypt, and other countries. In other words, the value of the capital that merely reappears in the value of the product is put at zero. Of course the ratio of surplus value, not only to that portion of the capital from which it immediately springs, and whose change of value it represents, but also to the sum total of capital advanced, is economically of very great importance. We shall therefore in the third book treat of this ratio exhaustively. In order to enable one portion of a capital to expand its value by being converted into labor-power, it is necessary that another portion be converted into means of production. In order that variable capital may perform its function, constant capital must be advanced in proper proportion, a proportion given by the special technical conditions of each labor process. The circumstance, however, that retorts and other vessels are necessary to a chemical process, does not compel the chemist to notice them in the results of his analysis. If we look at the means of production in their relation to the creation of value and to the variation in the quantity of value, apart from anything else, they appear simply as the material in which labor-power, the value-creator, incorporates itself. Neither the nature nor the value of this material is of any importance. The only requisite is that there be a sufficient supply to absorb the labor expended in the process of production. That supply once given, the material may rise or fall in value, or even be, as land in the sea, without any value in itself. But this will have no influence on the creation of value or on the variation in the quantity of value. Footnote. What Lucretius says is self-evident. Nil passe creri de nihilo. Out of nothing, nothing can be created. Creation of value is transformation of labor-power into labor. Labor-power itself is energy transferred to a human organism by means of nourishing matter. End note. In the first place, then, we equate the constant capital to zero. The capital advanced is consequently reduced from C plus V to V, and instead of the value of the product C plus V plus S, we now have the value produced V plus S. Given the new value produced equals 180 pounds, which sum consequently represents the whole labor expended during the process, then subtracting from it 90 pounds, the value of the variable capital, we have remaining 90 pounds, the amount of the surplus value. This sum of 90 pounds, or S, expresses the absolute quantity of surplus value produced. The relative quantity produced, or the increase percent of the variable capital, is determined, it is plain, by the ratio of the surplus value to the variable capital, or is expressed by S over V. In our example this ratio is 90 over 90, which gives an increase of 100 percent. 
This relative increase in the value of the variable capital, or the relative magnitude of the surplus value, I call the rate of surplus value. Footnote. In the same way the English use the term rate of profit, rate of interest. We shall see, in Book Three that the rate of profit is no mystery, so soon as we know the laws of surplus value. If we reverse the process, we cannot comprehend either the one or the other. End note. We have seen that the laborer, during one portion of the labor process, produces only the value of his labor power, that is, the value of his means of subsistence. Now, since his work forms part of a system based on the social division of labor, he does not directly produce the actual necessaries which he himself consumes. He produces instead a particular commodity, yarn, for example, whose value is equal to the value of those necessaries or of the money with which they can be bought. The portion of his day's labor devoted to this purpose will be greater or less in proportion to the value of the necessaries that he daily requires on an average, or what amounts to the same thing in proportion to the labor time required on an average to produce them. If the value of those necessaries represent on average the expenditure of six hours labor, the workman must on average work for six hours to produce that value. If instead of working for the capitalist he worked independently on his own account, he would, other things being equal, still be obliged to labor for the same number of hours, in order to produce the value of his labor power, and thereby to gain the means of subsistence necessary for his conservation or continued reproduction. But as we have seen, during that portion of his day's labor in which he produces the value of his labor power, say three shillings, he produces only an equivalent for the value of his labor power already advanced by the capitalist. The new value created only replaces the variable capital advanced. It is owing to this fact that the production of the new value of three shillings takes the semblance of a mere reproduction. That portion of the working day, then, during which this reproduction takes place, I call necessary labor time, and the labor expended during that time I call necessary labor. Necessary as regards the laborer, because independent of the particular social form of his labor, necessary as regards capital, and the world of capitalists, because on the continued existence of the laborer depends their existence also. Footnote. Note added in the third German edition. The author resorts here to the economic language in current use. It will be remembered that on page 182, present edition, page 174, it was shown that in reality the laborer advances to the capitalist and not the capitalist to the laborer. Friedrich Engels. End note. Note. In this work we have up to now employed the term necessary labor time to designate the time necessary under given social conditions for the production of any commodity. Henceforward we use it to designate also the time necessary for the production of the particular commodity labor power. The use of one and the same technical term in different senses is inconvenient, but in no science can it be altogether avoided. Compare, for instance, the higher with the lower branches of mathematics. Note. During the second period of the labor process, that in which his labor is no longer necessary labor, the workman, it is true, labors, expends labor power, but his labor, being no longer necessary labor, he creates no value for himself. He creates surplus value, which, for the capitalist, has all the charms of a creation out of nothing. This portion of the working day I name surplus labor time, and to the labor expended during that time I give the name of surplus labor. 
It is every bit as important, for a correct understanding of surplus value, to conceive it as a mere congelation of surplus labor time, as nothing but materialized surplus labor, as it is, for a proper comprehension of value, to conceive it as a mere congelation of so many hours of labor, as nothing but materialized labor. The essential difference between the various economic forms of society, between, for instance, a society based on slave labor and one based on wage labor, lies only in the mode in which this surplus labor is, in each case, extracted from the actual producer, the laborer. Footnote. Herr Wilhelm Thucydides Roscher has found a mare's nest. He has made the important discovery that if, on the one hand, the formation of surplus value or surplus produce, and the consequent accumulation of capital, is nowadays due to the thrift of the capitalist, on the other hand, in the lowest stages of civilization, it is the strong who compel the weak to economize. First C, page 78. To economize what? Labor? Or superfluous wealth that does not exist? What is it that makes such men as Rocher account for the origin of surplus value by a mere rechauffe of the more or less plausible excuses by the capitalist for his appropriation of surplus value? It is, besides their real ignorance, their apologetic dread of a scientific analysis of value and surplus value, and of obtaining a result, possibly not altogether palatable to the powers that be. End note. Since, on the one hand, the values of the variable capital and of the labor power purchased by that capital are equal, and the value of this labor power determines the necessary portion of the working day, and since, on the other hand, the surplus value is determined by the surplus portion of the working day, it follows that surplus value bears the same ratio to variable capital, that surplus labor does to necessary labor, or, in other words, the rate of surplus value, S over V, equals surplus labor over necessary labor. Both ratios, S over V and surplus labor over necessary labor, express the same thing in different ways in the one case by reference to materialized, incorporated labor, in the other by reference to living, fluent labor. The rate of surplus value is therefore an exact expression for the degree of exploitation of labor power by capital, or of the laborer by the capitalist. Footnote. Although the rate of surplus value is an exact expression for the degree of exploitation of labor power, it is in no sense an expression for the absolute amount of exploitation. For example, if the necessary labor, five hours, and the surplus labor is five hours, the degree of exploitation is 100%. The amount of exploitation is here measured by five hours. If, on the other hand, the necessary labor equals six hours, and the surplus labor equals six hours, the degree of exploitation remains, as before, 100%, while the actual amount of exploitation has increased 20%, namely, from five hours to six. End note. We assumed in our example that the value of the product, 410, constant, plus 90 variable, plus 90 surplus, and that the capital advanced equals 500 pounds. Since the surplus value equals 90 pounds, and the advanced capital equals 500 pounds, we should, according to the usual way of reckoning, get as the rate of surplus value, generally confounded with the rate of profits, 18%, a rate so low as possibly to cause a pleasant surprise to Mr. Carey and other harmonizers. But in truth the rate of surplus value is not equal to S over large C, or S over large C plus V. Thus it is not 90 over 500, but 90 over 90, or 100%, 
which is more than five times the apparent degree of exploitation. Although in the case we have supposed we are ignorant of the actual length of the working day, and of the duration in days or weeks of the labor process, as also of the number of laborers employed, yet the rate of surplus value S over V accurately discloses to us, by means of its equivalent expression, surplus labor over necessary labor, the relation between the two parts of the working day. This relation is here one of equality, the rate being one hundred percent. Hence it is plain the laborer, in our example, works one half of the day for himself, the other half for the capitalist. The method of calculating the rate of surplus value is therefore shortly as follows. We take the total value of the product and put the constant capital, which merely reappears in it, equal to zero. What remains is the only value that has, in the process of producing the commodity, been actually created. If the amount of surplus value be given, we have only to deduct it from this remainder to find the variable capital, and vice versa, if the latter be given, and we require to find the surplus value. If both be given, we have only to perform the concluding operation, viz., to calculate S over V, the ratio of the surplus value to the V, variable capital. Though the method is so simple, yet it may not be amiss, by means of a few examples, to exercise the reader in the application of the novel principles underlying it. First we will take the case of a spinning mill containing ten thousand mule spindles, spinning number thirty-two yarn from American cotton, and producing one pound of yarn weekly per spindle. We assume the waste to be six per cent. Under these circumstances ten thousand six hundred pounds of cotton are consumed weekly, of which six hundred pounds goes to waste. The price of the cotton in April, 1871, was seven and three-quarters pence per pound. The raw material, therefore, costs in round numbers three hundred forty-two pounds. The ten thousand spindles, including preparation machinery and motive power, cost, we will assume, one pound per spindle, amounting to a total of ten thousand pounds. The wear and tear we put at ten percent, or one thousand pounds yearly, equals twenty pounds weekly. The rent of the building we suppose to be three hundred pounds a year, or six pounds a week. Coal consumed, for one hundred horsepower indicated, at four pounds of coal per horsepower per hour during sixty hours, and inclusive of that consumed in heating the mill, eleven tons a week at eight shillings, sixpence a ton, amounts to about four and a half pounds a week. Gas, one pound a week. Oil, etc., four and a half pounds a week. Total cost of the above auxiliary materials, ten pounds weekly. Therefore, the constant portion of the value of that week's product is 378 pounds. Wages amount to 52 pounds a week. The price of the yarn is 12 and one-half pence per pound, which gives for the value of 10,000 pounds the sum 510 pounds. The surplus value is therefore, in this case, 510 minus 430 equals 80 pounds sterling. We put the constant part of the value of the product at zero, as it plays no part in the creation of value. There remains 132 pounds as the weekly value created, which equals 52 pounds variable, plus 80 pounds surplus. The rate of surplus value is therefore 80 over 52, equals 153 and 11 and thirteenths percent. In a working day of ten hours with average labor, the result is necessary labor equals three and thirty-one thirty-threes hours, and surplus labor equals six and two thirty-threes. Footnote. The above data, which may be relied upon, were given me by a Manchester spinner. 
In England the horsepower of an engine was formerly calculated from the diameter of its cylinder. Now the actual horsepower shown by the indicator is taken. End note. One more example. Jacob gives the following calculation for the year 1815. Owing to the previous adjustment of several items it is very imperfect. Nevertheless, for our purpose it is sufficient. In it he assumes the price of wheat to be eight shillings a quarter, and the average yield per acre to be twenty-two bushels. Value produced per acre. Seed, one pound nine shillings. Manure, two pounds ten shillings. Wages, three pounds ten shillings. Total, seven pounds nine shillings. Tithes, rates, and taxes, one pound one shilling. Rent, one pound eight shillings. Farmer's profit and interest, one pound two shillings. Total, three pounds eleven shillings. Assuming that the price of the product is the same as its value, we here find the surplus value distributed under the various heads of profit, interest, rent, etc. We have nothing to do with these in detail. We simply add them together, and the sum is a surplus value of three pounds eleven shillings. The sum of three pounds nineteen shillings paid for seed and manure is constant capital, and we put it equal to zero. There is left the sum of three pounds ten shillings, which is the variable capital advance, and we see that a new value of three pounds ten shillings plus three pounds eleven shillings has been produced in its place. Therefore, S over V equals three pounds eleven shillings over three pounds ten shillings, given a rate of surplus value of more than one hundred percent. The laborer employs more than one half of his working day in producing the surplus value, which different persons under different pretexts share amongst themselves. Footnote: The calculations given in the text are intended merely as illustrations. We have, in fact, assumed that prices equals values. We shall, however, see in Book Three that even in the case of average prices, the assumption cannot be made in this very simple manner. End note. End of section twenty-four.